This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, flamethrowers, Shireen here. Happy New Year. Well, friends, we did it. We made it out of that burning dumpster fire that was the year 2020 towards a positive and fantastic 2021, which I hope has begun with joy and justice and in health. Here at Burn It All Down, we traditionally offer you a best of series during the holidays. And if you missed our last episode, we brought you three of our favorite discussion segments that aired in 2020. In that same spirit, today we'll be bringing you three of our favorite interviews from this year. We will be starting with Amira's interview with community organizer and athlete Alison Desir, who spoke about the murder of Ahmed Arbery and the whiteness of the running community. This was in episode 158. Then we'll re-release an interview that Lindsay had with Rebecca Nagel on native masketry from episode 166. And then we'll wrap it all up with Jessica's interview with Kristen Duquette and Lacey Henderson from the week of episode 171 on COVID and disability in sport. We value and are so grateful to all of our guests for coming on in 2020 and sharing their experiences, having really important and impactful conversations with us. And flamethrowers, we certainly couldn't have done it without you. We are so grateful for your continued support, and we look forward to bringing you more very important and necessary work in 2021. Alison Desir joined Burn It All Down in May to discuss the murder of Ahmed Arbery and to talk about her experiences as a Black runner. Alison can also be heard in her interview with Lauren Fleshman in September 24, 2020, to talk about Women Run the Vote. You are welcome to check that out in our catalog, which are listed all on our website. Before any further ado, here is Amir's interview with Alison this year. So today I am joined by Allison Mariella Desir, who is the founder of Harlem Run, among many other things. She is a mental health advocate, an athlete, community organizer, and she might be one of the best people to talk about and try to process the killing of Ahmaud Arbery. She wrote a wonderful piece about the whiteness in the running world for Outside Magazine. I recommend everybody run out and read that piece. Um, and today we're going to chat about the inherent whiteness of running and the running community and the you know, ripple effects, the ramifications of the latest shooting of unarmed Black people. And so, Allison, thank you so much. Welcome to Run It All Down. Thank you so much. I want to say we have an additional special guest, my son, who'll be chim- chiming in, but it really is an honor to be speaking with you. 
Yes, I want to start first and foremost with just saying, how are you? I know you celebrated your first Mother's Day this weekend and what a heavy weekend it is. Yeah, you know, so this weekend I made a point to not really be on my phone, not really be on social media. But the thing about it is like, it's it's so emotional in and of itself, like the, the murder of yet another unarmed black man. And then there there were two additional murders, at least on Friday, right? So it's, this is unending. And then on top of that, it's like, now I'm so happy that my piece is being read, but it, it, it puts this extra responsibility where I'm getting emails from, from white folks, well-meaning white folks yeah. telling me they bought the book and they're so excited. And I'm like, okay, welcome to step zero, you know? Like, right. You're, I'm glad, like, we're people thanking me and I'm like, you're welcome. It's just, it's a lot of energy yeah. and there's this duality that I feel where on the one hand, like, I'm, I'm enraged, I'm angry, I'm emotional, but then there's also very much like the teacher side of me and like the mental health advocate and the wanting to work on this. So, I mean, that's a duality that like black and brown folks, marginalized folks feel. So yeah. feeling all the things. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and that's the thing. I, I'm really glad you brought this up. Me and Shereen talk about this a lot. Um, we have, we say bitches be laboring, <laughs> bitches be laboring. Um, the amount of emotional labor that it takes to do this kind of work. And so when I read your piece, I applauded it. I was so happy to see it. I shared it widely, of course. Yeah. And I also was like, whew, what an undertaking. Because like you said, it immediately puts this burden, mm-hmm. right, on you for <laughs> well-meaning white people. And then also like the sifting through the awfulness yeah. that that comes with being a truth teller in this capacity. So I did want to return to this piece of so the piece that we're talking about, Ahmaud Arbery and the whiteness of the running world. This is so necessary. It's so necessary. Can you talk a little bit about what compelled you? You know, you write about it in the piece, but when we're looking about that running community, what compelled you to pen this? Yeah. So, you know, it, it's funny, like I was talking to my partner, my husband about how I wrote this piece and like not to be like, mm all grandiose, but I was thinking about like Da Vinci talking about Michael, like how he, he made the piece. And now I can't even remember the, 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 Michael the, Angela. the, the statue of David. Right. And he, mm. he talked about how like he wasn't building statues, but he was sort of like revealing the form, like the form already mm. that he was inspired to reveal it. And that's sort of how it felt when I was penning this. Like I, I sat down, Molly from outside magazine told me that I had this opportunity And she said, you know, if you need a week to do it, let me know. And I sat down and it just sort of like poured out all at once. But, and it sort of just flowed out of me because I think it's something that we are always like, bitches be laboring, right? This is always on our minds. And from so many events where I find that I'm the token on the panel, or I find that like I look around and there's very few people who look like me that there are always conversations that I'm having with black and brown folks that we have to have, or we seem to be having and totally unknown to white folks. I just felt like I had to write something and I wanted to do it in a way, you know, I've been in a lot of school. I have two master's degrees. All my schooling is from Columbia. I was like, I know that I, I need to write this in a way that can break through. So I knew that I had to humanize myself. I knew that I had to tell the story in a way that wouldn't be too aggressive, but that would be poignant and would would move folks to action. And I'm really excited that that's the case. But again, this is this is just the start. 
Certainly. And so one of the things you you pick up on there is that, you know, the kind of one of the grand myths that that cultivated this running community is that running is this great equalizer and that everybody can kind of take to the pavement or the grass or, or the sprawling hills and together run and kind of unify around that love for endurance running and, and community formation. And part of what you're doing is is saying, exposing this for what many people already know and feel is, is completely a grand narrative that just doesn't feel applicable for marginalized people within that community. What's it like to be part of a running community as um, as a Black woman, as, as a marginalized person? Um, and how can this moment reveal some of those cracks in that in that foundation of that community? Yeah, I, I think, you know, excellent question. I think it goes back to that duality, right? Like I had another conversation recently with um, one of the founders from FlowTrack, which is I never thought that I would have the opportunity to be on that in that platform because that is also a very white space. But he was asking me things like generally runners say that they get such a mental release and it's such a beautiful feeling to go running. Does that mean that you don't feel that? And I was like, mm. the thing is, I feel that and I feel a sense of terror, right? And and this is like the duality that we deal with, that we know that running is a beautiful thing. In fact, I came to running for my mental health. But at the same time, I know that when I'm on the run, I'm subject to forces that are completely beyond my control and that the legal system isn't even there to back me, right? So I think, and this is not just true of my experience, this is true of trans folks, this is true of you know the LGBT community. And I just think because anti-racism is an active thing, like it's not enough to just say I'm not racist, right? Like right. it is an active everyday thing that you have to participate in. And that kind of consciousness is really only in the minds of, of folks like us. Right. Exactly. And I think that, you know, you raise this point about how there's been this kind of new movement about around runner safety. And a lot of that, you know, we've seen a lot of mobilization around safety for like women runners and, you know, safety in terms of like where you can run. But I think that you touch on the negotiations that people have to make who who are marginalized in that space. So COVID, you know, has really changed the game in a lot of ways, but people have still been able to run. But then it becomes a negotiation of, does this face mask make me look more threatening? I had a colleague who um, runs with a jogging stroller and he was like, so if I wear a face mask, am I more threatening? But I have a stroller, so am I less threatening? Like, what is that complex negotiation you have to do to constantly, you know? Exactly. The high level mathematics of, of, of blackness, like what, you know, what is that right calculation that will make you make sure you get home safely that night? It's so true. I, you know, I think about the, me making that choice for myself, like, am I going to go out and wear a mask? And I think to myself, okay, well, my neighborhood is relatively quote unquote safe. I do have privilege myself, right? I have an education. So maybe I can talk myself out of whatever the person would want to do with me. You know, like these are very real things that we think about. And I've been disappointed in the coverage of, of running, like running very much has had a boom people have been talking about, but people haven't been talking about the way that intersectionalism plays into this and the way that folks are impacted differently. So you start the piece in a way that immediately resonated with me because you narrate what it's like to now think of these questions, which I, I know you've been thinking about for some time, but the urgency, perhaps the way it resonates 
now with you having a son. I am the mom of two Black boys, and I have a, a Black girl as well who I'm equally as concerned about. But that immediately hit my heart because I think one of the things that that also raised for me, and I want to shout Sam White here, soon to be Dr. Sam White, who works, she's a a part of the running community and she works on uh, Black girlhood and and physical culture. And she always talks about youth culture in a way that really kind of has put it on my radar more. And I was thinking about this when just reading that first paragraph of your piece, because I think about what does this mean, not just for Black men and Black women, but for Black girls and Black boys, especially when we know that Black childhood is 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 very constrained because Black girls and Black boys are seen as adult far earlier than their white counterparts. Um, Tamir Rice was constantly described as a man despite being 12 years old. And so when we're thinking about running community and we're thinking about how that trickles down to youth spaces as well, it just struck a chord. Like I, I felt myself kind of gasping for air thinking about doing that calculation is my my sons are adorable and really cute. When when do they cross that line to be a threat? Yeah, when I when I look at my son and I think about the ways that I want to set him up for success and the ways that I want to introduce him into the outdoors and the ways that I want to give him access to things that I didn't have until I was older. But there's also in the back of my mind, to what extent am I setting him up to feel too comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's the idea that even, so another young black man who was killed this weekend was, he was speeding, right? He was doing something stupid. The, The police were pursuing him. In the end, he was shot multiple times. And at the end of the video, Apparently, I didn't watch. Apparently, you can hear one of the cops laughing and saying that mm. there's not going to be an open casket, right? Like, did this kid do something stupid? Yes. He was 20, 21, right? The amount of stupid things people do. But white people, white men have a boyhood that extends until their 40s and 50s. Honestly, Hell yeah, exactly. Right? And so, God forbid, I make my, fun, my son feel so confident that he's in the trail and he doesn't avert his eyes or he doesn't, God forbid he wants to have a relationship with a white woman Mm. or a white man. You know what I mean? Like I think about how I have to prepare him to be like confident in owning spaces. And then also really understand that you're shrinking yourself as a means of survival. There are moments when you can be an activist, but I need you alive. You know, so it's just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's terrifying. It's it's awful. I mean, like I think about that Facebook group that popped up in support of the men who killed Ahmad. And one of the lines that says he wasn't listening, he didn't comply with simple commands. And I think you just struck on something that resonates so deeply is like, how do we teach our child, our, our children, our black kids to take up space and to be full citizens and to be, you know, fully human and recognize them as fully human, knowing that there's moments of life or death that depends on their ability to shrink themselves into a kind of second class citizenship. The fact exactly. that if they're confronted with two white men who roll up on them with rifles, that complying, even though they have no authority, is the difference between perhaps getting home at night or not. And that's it's I don't have words for what that yeah makes you do as a parent you know what you know you know like what with this piece what I was trying to convey also is that like this is just our everyday reality on a simple 
run, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yet, and still, people want to make this the like, running seem as though it's not political, as if our identity doesn't matter. When I mean, look at the Olympics; the whole thing is political, right? right. Look at like Castor Semenya; she's trying to compete, and people want to get in her pants, right? Like, so it's just it's just such a fallacy. And so I was trying to break it down, and like, can't you see that like literally every day? this is a fear and the way that my my inter, my identities intersect i have a fear because i'm a woman i have a fear because i'm a black woman mm-hmm. i have a fear because i'm a black mother so yeah. i mean i'm yeah it's it's just it's it really is beyond comprehension to have to live like this certainly and and you know i think that that the what it does mentally and this is something i want to go back to that point you made about releases you can get from running so on one hand, you have the anxiety over safety. You have, you know, the general anxiety of being Black mothers. You have postpartum, right? right. You have all right. of these things that are weighing on your mental health. And then you have running that's supposed to be a space that really helps with that. And in many ways, it does. Do yep. you feel like, you know, how do you negotiate a space that is supposed to be a space of release that also comes with its own tugs on your mental health? And is there a way for people, you know, listening and people kind of mudding through this themselves? Do you have any kind of tips or techniques or suggestions for people protecting their mental health while managing these anxieties and still looking towards running as outlook? Yeah, I mean, wow, what a big question, right? But it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely part of my everyday reality. I think that one thing, so for me personally, and this is not the case for everybody, but for me personally, this this sort of second double consciousness, right, if I can borrow that phrase, is always there for me, this sort of sense of fear. But I will say what helps me is being present. And I, I also thank my son for this sort of like mindfulness that I've developed because I mean, even in this moment, I'm talking to you as I'm watching my son like tear up the floor. Mm-hmm. Like, like my son allows me when I think about all the terrible possibilities and all the systems that I want to bring down. Then my son will like poop or he'll, <laughs> he'll smile or he'll tumble or, and so there's very much like I'm brought back to this present moment, and that's really ha- how I'm able to enjoy the run, right? Because I'm able to think about my breath in this moment. I'm able to focus on what I'm seeing, right? Like many times connecting with your senses, like what am I seeing? What am I feeling? Feeling grounded, all of those things allow you to come back to the present. I mean, that's really what I can offer in this moment. That's really what's helping me. Also knowing that we're so confined to our apartments and rightfully so because of the pandemic and green spaces, just getting outside really does have a positive effect. So it's just, I mean, it's back to that, those calculations of to what extent can I put myself out there today? Um, and maybe it doesn't work for you every day, but I think mindfulness and, and, and staying present to the extent that you can is really, uh, you know, what I can offer. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you have demonstrated through your career is finding community within the community. Um, And so I want to I want to big up Harlem Run, especially. I mean, I know it's hard right now. I can't imagine fostering this running community, particularly in Harlem, in a time where New York has been so decimated by COVID. But, you know, can you just speak to a second for for finding these kind of carving out your own communal spaces within the running community? 
Yeah, you know, I'm glad you, you said carving out because the thing is I didn't find it first. I mean, I, I came into running and I, I found community and I found some folks who were really great and helped me through the first marathon. But I knew that I wanted to create my own space that was rooted in like vulnerability and, and mental health acceptance and in, you know, black and brown folks. And I think that what's, you know, we haven't been able to run together. We've got a lot of virtual stuff going on. But one thing in particular that has been so fun and so sweet to see is we've started, some of us in leadership have started running to each other's apartments Uh. and like leaving signs outside for each other or like waving from windows. And so it's sort of like, it's just this novel way of being like, I see you, like you're important to me, like you're still my neighbor in the midst of this. But truly like the text and the, the love and particularly around Mother's Day after this response, if it weren't for Harlem Run and Run for All Women and these, these other communities that I created, I would feel completely alone. Yes. So, you know, it's possible to find folks within this very white space who are like-minded. And, you know, if the work of, this is not, if this is not our burden to teach white folks, right? right? Some of us will choose to do that. But by no means is this like, we all should start doing this. Like, we're just trying to survive on top of it all, Mm -hmm. right? So um, find your people and find safety. Love that. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is like you you, you certainly picked up the burden of teaching. You give book recommendations and everything for people who did hashtag run with mod, who did their 2.23 miles. You know, I think for me, I knew I found it really cathartic, certainly, but- but I watched how it spread and it hit the running community. I'm part of the Peloton community and there was like a lot of support there. What is the next thing, right? What It's one thing to run 2.3, 2.23 miles and make a hashtag. But if you're a white person within this community, that doesn't replace actively being anti-racist. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, like, I made these three recommendations because I was like, the thing that I don't want to happen is exactly that. Like I did, I did the hashtag, I did the run, like, okay, I feel good about myself until the next thing happens. So I think the next step is, is a really unsexy step of doing the work. And the work for me includes reading those two books that I mentioned, but really the reading is in service of your own self-development work, your own racial identity development. And I think this is what's critical that people, many people don't talk about, that it is possible to have a white racial identity that is not tied to white supremacy, mm. right? Like, well, white people don't learn about whiteness because whiteness is the default. Yeah. So I can't imagine what it is to be a white person, but it must be something like, I'm white, everything is in service to me, whether you know it or not, yeah. right? So you don't think about like, where you're really from, like, I'm white, I'm American, like, this is my space, like, I could go there, I could do this, right? And I don't mean to make this sound silly, I'm just trying to, trying to imagine. And so when you develop an identity, white racial identity development, which is actually something that I'm going to talk about in my Meaning Through Movement tour, is a process by which you look at yourself, look at your privilege, look at the ways that you're, you know, benefiting unnecessarily, look at the ways in which you are privileged in the media and in in every single space. And how can you love yourself and love where you come from without having to be the standard, without Mm. having these entitlements? And that requires active work. So, you know, there, if you're in the running industry and there's a bunch of white CEOs all in a room together, maybe you look around and you wonder like, where are the other folks? Like, 
you know, certain, if it's all white people, you should all be committed to anti-racism, but certainly there must be other diverse voices who are missing in this room. And how can you make it so that those voices are in the room? How can you amplify those voices? So, you know, the, the, the work is really, like I said, it's unsexy. It's like, you got to read, you got to start understanding what these words mean, because I have to say, even the least formally educated, right? The person who doesn't have the degrees like I have, a person of color understands how race works in this country. Right. And the same cannot be said for white folks. So yeah, do the work, do the reading, ask yourself questions. People often say that they're nervous to make mistakes. They don't want to say the wrong thing. Guess what? You're already saying the wrong thing. At least say the wrong thing in service of progress. You mm. know? And that's really where I am, where I'm at. And like for right now, I feel compelled to continue to have these conversations and offer resources. But when I don't like, don't talk to me. <laughs> You know, like there, there are a lot of us out there and it's, it's, it's a, the burden is on the white folks. Yeah. And, and I think that this is a slog fest. It's a process. It's not, you know, it's, you said, like you said, for the next time, because mm-hmm. we know there will be one. And um, we're not going to, like, it's not going to be like revelations right and left and you're getting chills all the time. And like, it's not, it's really a slow process and it doesn't feel good because you're questioning yourself. And I always say this because I think it makes people more feel more comfortable. Like, I don't know why it's just, a, it's a thing that I do, but I can be taken to task for my ableism, right. Mm-hmm. For, for my transphobia, which is also like, just like white supremacy, transphobia is built into the fabric mm-hmm. of the world. Right. I can and should be taken to task for that. And that is work that I must do. So if I, with my marginalized identities can do that work, then white folks certainly can. And it's not going to be pleasant all the time. Right. And in fact, it shouldn't be, right? Like Unlearning. Exactly. (laughs) If it feels good when you're doing it, then it's probably not doing the work it needs to. Yeah, Um, exactly. Well, I really appreciate the time and the effort that you're putting in. And I so appreciate, you know, you taking up this space and, and creating and cultivating that space for others and really charging the running community, like so many other communities, to to yeah. figure the shit out. You know, I think of uh, the words that Aja wrote about you. I, the last kind of stanza of this poem: "I move. I am a movement focused and fierce. I smile. I laugh. I lift and carry sisters. I am most free, running for freedom." And that, at the end of the day, I feel like is it. We're trying to get free, you know, we're trying to be in a space where you can go running, you can take Corey out for a run and not do such a complex math. Exactly. Exactly. Like 10 PM in a sports bra. Right. (laughs) My son, you know, we will have made some progress. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I said this before and I think of Sweet Honey and the Rock a lot and Ella mm-hmm. Baker and, and say, you know, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. Mm-hmm. And lucky you're endurance athlete because the road is long. But I thank you so much for the race you're running and for those who are bringing along and elevating with you. And of course, for taking your time and doing this work and sharing it with Burn It All Down. And I want to thank you for your platform because I often look to you all for what is relevant, what's important, what should I be tuned into? And yeah, you know, it takes all of us. So thank you very much. Next up, we have Lindsay's interview with Rebecca Nagel about the Washington football team. Rebecca Nagel is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and one of the creators of the Washington Red Hawks campaign. This interview 
initially was aired in 2017, but because of the momentous change in sports addressing anti-indigeneity, we felt it was really important to underline where that work comes from, where those changes and how they are made and what that process is. We are very careful at Burn It All Down to ensure that those who do the work get that credit and amplified, which is why we are resharing this interview with Indigenous activist Rebecca Nagel. Hello, everyone. I am here with Rebecca Nagel. She's an organizer with the Red Hawks campaign and a citizen of Cherokee Nation. If you have been online at all this past week, uh, you might have seen a news story that the Washington NFL team is, was changing its name to the Washington Redhawks. That announcement spread midweek and very quickly was uh, picked up by some very viral sources. It came out that that was, of course, not the actual case, unfortunately, that Dan Snyder did not change his heart overnight. But the, Rebecca was one of the people who helped create this campaign because it was actually a group of activists who were trying to spread the word about, I believe, how easy a name change would be and how it could be actually not as complicated as we're making it. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. So let's just start. Where in the world did this idea come from? Yeah, you know, I had been thinking about spoofing the Washington football team for a while. I had um, done a couple other internet-based culture jams before, and I thought that the team would make a really good target. So I approached a woman named Jordan Daniels, who's the co-founder of the Rising Hearts Coalition, which is a group of Native advocates that do grassroots organizing in D.C. And yeah, I wanted to see if they would be interested in doing it. And they said yes. And then we started working on it in about August. So it's been in the works for a few months now. That's so exciting. I mean, it was so realistic. And it it wasn't one of those moments for me where it was just, of course, because I cover, you know, politics and sports. So everyone keeps sending me these articles, you know, the articles like over and over again. And of course, I realized pretty quickly that this, you know, that it had to be just a very well done spoof. But it was amazing how quickly it caught on. Were you were you expecting that? And what, what do you attribute that to? Was expecting it to get some media play. And you know, that's was our goal. But as far and as wide as it went, uh, we definitely weren't expecting. And so it exceeded our expectations. And I think that the response really proves um, the point that we're trying to put forth with the Culture Jam is that changing the name would be easy, popular, and powerful. I mean, people were really excited about it. People really moved. And so at this point, there's really no reason other than stubborn racism why at this point the team's not changing the name. So there were, you held a couple of rallies this week. I believe one was today, this is Sunday, before the, the Washington game at FedEx Field. And there was also one at RFK Stadium. What was the point of those rallies? And I guess, what was the atmosphere? Did you encounter any, was there anyone against you? Did you, did you have any feedback, any uh, resistance? Yeah, I mean, so we were at, um, I just got home actually. Oh, wow. The stadium today. So we had a Go Red Hawks pep rally. We had banners, we had t shirts, we had um, speakers and a drum group. So it was a really good day. And, you know, we had some hecklers. We had some people who yelled different things at us. I would say, especially for folks who have been doing these demonstrations at the stadium 
over the years, it was actually a less hostile environment than usual. And also there were a lot of fans who sort of came up and were like, well, what is this? What is this about? And we were able to have a lot of conversations with people, you know, who said, you know, like I, I would get behind the name change. I, I see, I see what you're saying. And so, yeah, I think a lot of people are really ready for it. And I think that there will always be those diehard fans who will be mad if there is any change. And I think that if you look at social justice issues, particularly racial justice issues, I mean, there are some people who will always protest racial progress in this country, which isn't a good reason to not do it. Right. Yeah. We don't have to get to 100% consensus here, like to move on people's basic human dignity. (laughs) Right. Like, unfortunately, that's not going to happen. So we just got to keep moving forward anyways. What, what are those conversations like? Take me through it. And I think that this is something that a lot of people who agree, yes, the name can be changed, should be changed. Yes, I see why this is racist. But when they're caught in those conversations with people who are ardent, you know, ardent fans, ardently against it, they kind of don't know exactly what to say. How do you handle those conversations? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, we were talking with somebody who was selling merch. And at first, you know, he's really mad that we were there because we were like setting up close to where he was selling merch. And then by the end of it, we actually gave him a Red Hawks t-shirt and we're talking. (laughs) Yeah, and another person came over and then brought his family over. And so... You know, there was some educating about the origin of the word, which sometimes a lot of times people don't know the full origin of the word. And so it actually comes from while the U.S. Army did a lot of the wholesale slaughter of indigenous people, a lot of the murder was actually settlers. And so just like individual settlers that would go out and kill native women and children. And the colonial governments would incentivize that by giving people money for scalps. And there are actually different prices for male scalps and women's scalps and the scalps of children. And so settlers would go out and would murder native people and then bring the scalps back to the government in exchange for cash. And so that's literally where the term comes from. You know, like I've heard that that description so many times and it never sent it never like it, it never seeds to make me go how how are we still having this conversation then do you know what i mean like yeah. how is how is just you saying that those two sentences how is that not the end of all of this like yeah and i you know you know this week we spent a lot of time being mentored and talking to a longtime activist on this issue Suzanne Hardjo who's been fighting racist mascots since the 60s and one thing she said in our conversation this week was you know i haven't heard a new argument in defense of racist mascots since 1962 and I just, I don't think that there are good reasons to keep the name and a lot of reasons for it to change. It can feel these days like we are moving backwards as a country for pretty obvious reasons. But overall, there are some positive changes still happening. But thanks to grassroots activism and thanks to people. And, you know, lately we've seen that coincide with athletics a lot. You know, we've seen the Black Lives Matter movement really take off. And thanks to Colin Kaepernick, we've seen, you know, athletes really kind of find their voice and do it on and speak up on a bigger stage. Do you think that that current political movement within sports is going to help the racist mascots cause to kind of become more mainstream again? I hope so. I mean, I think that when people were kneeling during the football games, 
it wasn't brought up a lot in the media I watched, but I also think that the media lost the point of the original protest of the players, which was to talk about police brutality. And a lot of the media that I saw was talking about Trump and Trump's backlash and the, you know, like, what does the Star Spangled Banner mean? And what is our national anthem? And so I think even the initial issue that players were putting forward around police killing unarmed black people got lost in the media frenzy. And so I think it it's a hard, yeah, I, I don't, I didn't see that issue come up, but I think in general, in a broader way, I think our country is in, is having an identity crisis right now. And so there's this huge backlash um, from white people who feel threatened by the advances that people of color have had. And then at the same time, we're seeing a lot of racist symbols like Confederate monuments starting to fall and people really starting to question that history. And so there's been a real, well, there's been this awakening of white supremacy. I think there has at the same time been a counterbalance of a reckoning with what some of these symbols mean. And so we're in an interesting moment. And I think that the mascot debate is really relevant to that of how, how are we teaching our kids about these issues? How are we talking to them about the history of this country? And for better or worse, a lot of people get their information from pop culture and mascots is a huge way that people learn about who native people are, whether or not they would say that out loud. I think it's definitely a really big part of people's subconscious. Yeah. And there, there was recently an article, I can't remember the exact situation, why it was, but there was a, a racial slur, the N-word had been used by, I think, an NFL player on the Washington team. And the headlines about it would not bleep out the Washington team's name, but then bleep out the N-word, you know? And it was just yeah. this big, it, it was like, look, how are we doing this? Like, why do you think that it's become so okay to continue to use these racist mascots. And in the case of, you know, lots of times you'll have the Indians where the logo itself is very racist, but, you know, the names aren't in itself a racial slur, like with the Washington NFL team. How is that just gone overlooked? Why isn't that reckoning come? I mean, I think that one of the biggest hurdles that we face as Native people in terms of gaining equality in the United States is invisibility. And I think a lot of people in the U.S. think that either Native people don't really exist anymore, or there are just so few of us and we just, there's like a handful of us that live on a reservation somewhere in a really rural area. We're not seen as contemporary vibrant people. We're not seen as living in the DMV, you know, people don't realize that the tribe whose land the stadium is on is still an active tribe, then they're still practicing their ceremonies and their own self governance. And so and and I think it's this self reinforcing thing, because it's like, well, if people aren't around, and they don't exist, and they're not real, then why would you need to stand up for their rights? And I think that, you know, the maroon cartoon of a disembodied head on the side of a football helmet really reinforces those ideas that we're not real people. You know, you're not going to stand up for the rights of a cartoon. Right. What There's so much great grassroots uh, activism going on within the Native community. How can those outside of the community help and help amplify that work? And, and are there any specific works that you would like to, to draw attention to that maybe people aren't aware of? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that um, getting involved with whatever organization is in your area. And so looking up, it might be a tribal organization. It might be, you know, an urban Indian health center, but really starting by trying to build relationships with whatever native community is where you're at. Um, And then I think also it's really important for folks to include us in their issues. So, you know, when people are talking about the environment, you know, indigenous communities are at the front line. When people are talking about global warming, you know, our communities are at the front line of resource extraction and a lot, almost every issue in the U.S. And so a lot of times we're just completely left out. Like I was watching the news And I was watching this episode about police shootings, and it was talking about how we talk about a lot of times police fatalities, but there hasn't been a lot of statistics on people who have been shot by the police and survived. And so they showed statistics by race, and they completely left out Native Americans when we have really high rates of police violence. And so I think that visibility issue is key. And so... Yeah, I think non-Native people building relationships and then also self-educating. I mean, if you, you know, I think most people in the U.S., like what you know is like what you've learned in your high school history class and what you've learned through the media, which is not only not enough information, but also incorrect information. And so there's just a lot of re-educating that people need to do in this country to be able to understand Native identity and Native rights to be able to effectively advocate for it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on the success of the campaign, which even solicited a response from the Washington NFL team itself. Of course, the response was, how dare you think we might be uh, be decent people? We are never changing this name, but it was a response nonetheless. And uh, where can people follow the work you're doing going forward? Yeah, so people can follow the Rising Hearts Coalition on Facebook and Twitter, and people can also root for the updated Washington Redhawks team, also under that name on Facebook and Twitter. Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about Blue Wire Hustle, a brand new program where you can host your very own podcast here at Blue Wire. Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. Or if you want to host a podcast and just don't know where to start, Hustle is the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. On top of that, we'll help you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is, you can get all of this for only $15 a month. The same rate as any other hosting site would charge you for just the initial setup. So whether you're starting from scratch or have an existing show that you want to grow, Hustle is open door to leveling up your sports experience. Acceptance into the program is limited. So get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com join. Check out the description box for this episode to find out more. But that's bwhustle.com join.
wrapping up part one of the best of interviews is Jessica's interview with Kristen Duquette and Lacey Henderson coming to speak about COVID and disability in sport. Kristen Duquette is a disability advocate and former Team USA swimmer, and Lacey Henderson is a current Paralympian and host of the podcast Picked Last in Gym Class. They spoke about their own athletic journeys, disability in sports, and of course, COVID-19. Okay, first, uh, tell me who you are and what you do. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm Kristen Duquette. I don't know where to begin because I feel like I have lived about five different lives at this point. Kristen Duquette is a former Team USA swimmer for the Paralympic League. She's a former Obama appointee who now works in the federal government. She's also a student at the Naval Postgraduate School for Homeland Defense and Security. And definitely a disability rights advocate uh, nationwide and internationally also. Well, that does sound like five lifetimes worth of things. (laughs) It's very impressive. Can we start by talking, if you feel comfortable with this, can you tell us a little bit about your disability and what it means to have a progressive disability and the impact of that on your life? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up non-disabled, meaning I, I didn't show any symptoms of any kind of disability at all. And at the time when I was a kid, I was doing about six different sports. I wanted to, oh, wow. yeah, I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer. I wanted to be Natalie Coughlin. Coughlin's got the lead, but there's Maderos and Bootsma chasing, and it's going to be Natalie Coughlin. And I love backstroke. What started to happen was I couldn't keep up with my friends. I remember at a swim meet, doing a flip turn at the wall, and when I flipped, I looked on either side in the middle of the flip turn, and I, I couldn't see anyone around me. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm totally killing it here. And I think I was, what, like seven or eight. I'm a very competitive person that hasn't changed. But I touched the wall, and I seen no one else is in the pool because I was that slow, and everyone was coughing. And... um. My shoulder blades are starting to stick out. Uh, it's called scapular winging. And I was starting to trip over my feet. And I remember when I was about seven, eight, nine, just being like, Kristen, why can't you do this? Like, just run a little faster or just like kick a little harder. What is going on? I got a genetic test and a bunch of tests when I was eight. And on the week of my ninth birthday, I was diagnosed with fasciocapular humeral dystrophy, which is a specific kind of muscular dystrophy. It's genetic. It's non-life-threatening for the majority of people. Growing up was not fun. They definitely went through my phases of depression and struggling of trying to fit in, uh, just like all kids growing up. But... The more I was growing up, also different aspects of my body were just degrading at the same time. So while I was maturing intellectually and socially, physical parts of my body were going in the opposite direction. What did this mean for your sports career? I wasn't aware of disabled sports. I wasn't aware of Paralympics or anything like that. I just quit all sports and I took up music. I just threw myself into academics 
I used to be a manager of different sports teams and I despised it. I just, I wanted to also be out on the field. It was only when I was in high school was I, I retaught myself how to swim. I wanted to do something on my own body's merit and I wanted to be with my friends. Can you tell me what it, what do you mean when you say you taught, retaught yourself how to swim? Like, what did that look like? How do you explain that's that a great to someone question. who is able-bodied and how they yeah. had to relearn a skill like that. Yeah, I mean, I essentially, I took six years off and I remember sitting down and being like, okay, I mentally remember how to do it. Regardless, if you are in a different phase of a body, you mentally still remember how to do it. Like, I still remember how to run, even though my legs could not do that. But Um, Hmm. You can imagine that, right? So it's a lot of different visualization with memory. And I was just like, all right, let's just see what we can do. And I remember looking up different YouTube videos of technique of like Michael Phelps, Ryan Lochte, Aaron Pearsall, just like very high stake races that I would actually take to the pool and for 10, it was like the final countdown, but it was really with like a senior citizen swimming next to me and they didn't know that it was the final countdown. But so I used like a lot of imagination, but just getting back into the water was so beautiful in the sense that I had no one around. I just fell in love with something all over again that gave me so much freedom and joy in a world that I really didn't feel like I belonged in a lot of senses. And also I was getting that endorphin high and the chemical releases that I hadn't had in years. But the end goal was to be on my high school swim team and I knew that no one else was disabled at all. So I said to myself, and I don't know where this came from, (laughs) but I said, if I could swim 600 laps and the pole was maybe like 10, 11 yards. It wasn't a 25 meter or anything like that. I said, if I could turn 600 laps in that pole in one day, I can at least show this high school coach that I love the water. I'm not going to be making points, but hopefully I can add something to the team. And so I made a journal. I like did a bunch of workouts and I, I logged it all. And I eventually did that goal a year later and I emailed her and, and she was like, I have no clue who you are. I can't, I can't imagine now, like I was 15, I think. Yeah, I was 15 of like getting an email from a 15 year old of like, look, I did this. And then I, I like swam this, but I can't make points to your team. Like, can I be on your team? And she said, I don't know who you are, but you definitely show determination and a passion for this. I would love if you were on our team that you also trained for the Paralympics. And so that's how I actually learned about the Paralympics and started. Oh, that's so interesting. And so you hadn't seen growing up, you hadn't seen disabled athletes. No. So actually, a, a funny story that I like to say is when I, I wasn't competing and I wasn't swimming. So I think it was about 13 at the time. I remember watching the 2004 Olympic Games and just like watching all the races that were happening in Greece. And I remember thinking like, my God, if I had another shot of swimming and racing, I would just like, God, I would give it my all. And 
six years later in 2010, I competed at that same venue as the captain of Team USA. You have set, this is, am I correct on this? You have set American Paralympic records? American records, yes. Yeah, what does that feel like? What does it feel like to set a record like that? It's pretty cool. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And so in the middle of all of this, you go to college because we're talking about your college years. You go to Wheaton. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the story of trying to swim while you're at Wheaton? Yeah. I went up with a swim coach beforehand. You know, I was 18, 17, 18. He was like, I've trained with other Paralympic swimmers back in my career. Like, yeah, this is awesome. And so I went there. And just being a disabled person in general, you have to be your advocate at all times. And I was growing into speaking up for myself in those ways because growing up, I felt so much shame for looking and operating so differently than everyone else around me. And I had a comment one time from the coach of like, oh, you said you need help doing XYZ. Like, does your mom help you put your competition suit on too? Things like that. And I I didn't know how to respond. I didn't even understand the context. And I really didn't feel included at all. Uh, some of the swimmers were nice, but I definitely was not included. And I, I was told multiple times that I was too intense on a dream and something that I really wanted. What eventually happened was I was actually at a training in San Diego, California with one of the Team USA coaches, and I got an email in August from the coach of all the reasons why I should no longer be on the swim team, and they were going to have tryouts this year, and I could try out, but it was very likely I wouldn't make it. And I could still swim at the pool if I wanted to, but the chances of me being actually in the swim team now were not going to happen. And it was a eight bullet points. And some of them were, will you take away from your teammates' concentration before their events because you ask for help to get out of the pool? Obviously, because these pools don't have ADA compliance of lifts so I do have to get pulled out and I physically can't pull myself out of a pool it related a lot to asking for help in a lot of things that I legitimately needed help with and again I felt a ton of shame I felt like I was a burden and I hated it and I didn't know where else to go and I I transferred to Trinity because it was close to home and I did that within two weeks of the semester of my sophomore year and I filed a complaint with the Department of Education of that instance at Wheaton College with the swim coach. That was with the Office of Civil Rights? Yes. What happened with it? You know, I think maybe about a year or two later I got a notice, uh, like a letter, but... I don't think anything really came of it. I know Mm. a lot of people said, you know, Kristen, you should sue the school. I, quite frankly, just didn't have it in me. I just felt so much shame. I didn't want to rehash so much of that. And so you had the goal of going to the 2012 Paralympics in London. When did you find out that that was not going to happen? The 2012 
uh, U.S. Paralympic trials were in North Dakota. I remember, so I'm a backstroker, and I remember since I was in a lower class, less events were going to be available in the lending games. So it, it was for an event that was not my event. And I, I did the 50 free. I saw my times. I was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And I, I knew that, but what they did is after the swimming, they ask you to go into a room and they announce the team. And I knew I didn't make it, but I still went because a lot of my friends I knew were going to make it. And I will never forget such a conflicting moment of feeling like my heart was like swept on the floor and stomped on at the same time of feeling really happy uh, for my friends that are crying because they made a dream that they wanted while my dream was just crushed. It did take a while to not feel depressed and to know that There is so much else to do outside of competing and swimming. And after London 2012, I remember talking with my college advisor on what my thesis would be. And we wanted to tie in so much of my personal experience. And I thought about and eventually wrote whether disability rights are viewed as human rights in a UN context of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, specifically Article 30.5, which is the right to sport. Yeah, and you went to the UN, correct, in 2016 to talk about this. Can you give us, what is like your elevator pitch for your argument? Like, what were you arguing in your thesis? Wow, I'm really put on the spot. Um, uh, That's fine. We could like... No, I'll I'll try. I mean, I put enough work into it and it was a very expensive education, so I might as well put something <laughs> off of it. Um, essentially, the argument is that it's valid and it needs to happen, but the disability community on an international level, it's the biggest minority population in the world. It's drastically underrepresented, and the majority of a lot of governments are still very much focusing on basic human rights for people that are disabled because it's needed but at the same time I want to push it as my coaches in the past have said I am a pit bull I want to push it to all the other levels of uh, recreation of sport of media of sexual reproductive rights of politics and it's going to take all of us it's not those that are just disabled to do that. A good friend of mine is an organizer, and she always says that hope is a discipline. Oh, you gotta you gotta work at that, you know. Yeah, so that's not just something you can hold all the time. Um, is access to sport a human right? I would categorize sport as culture, and access to culture is a human right. I would constitute that obviously as a secondary human right compared to food, water, shelter, and I would 100% see it more as also an access because non-disabled people have access to that. And so 
we need equal access. So the pandemic has been affecting all kinds of athletes, right, from amateur to professional, and we've seen that. But in what ways do you think disabled athletes are being uniquely affected? Yeah, so one thing that we we do have going for ourselves is the ability to adapt. We're always adapting to different situations. We're always adapting to getting more injuries or more susceptible to physical things that come in our way. Um, and obviously systems too. So I think the biggest thing is we're already creative. We have a leg up in that sense. I also think at the same time, depending on the disability itself, there's only kind of a window for a lot of disabilities that you really peak. And a lot of that is contingent on time and where you are in your body to like max it out. But also, you know, on top of that, a lot of disabled athletes are also immunocompromised. If I was immunocompromised and also a Paralympic uh, swimmer still training, would I run the risk of using the pole I would always use? There's a lot of elements that aren't working in your favor when you're already physically compromised in some way. I have a couple more questions. Is Go for it. Okay? <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm in quarantine. Um, so- I'm not going anywhere. So. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> um, so I know that disabled athletes and access to sport, this is a huge topic, but... Are there two or three maybe basic things that need to change or could change in order to make sport more accessible? Or I guess like if you were in charge of the world, Kristen, like what would be the first thing that that you would change around disabled sports? Oh, gosh, I would. uh, (laughs) Do people want (laughs) me to have that power? Um, I would increase the ability for disabled athletes to have collegiate scholarships and I, quite frankly, I would rework the NCAA system to also include disabled athletes because that I actually opens... never thought about the fact that it doesn't. It doesn't unless you have a particular type of disability that you are still able to contribute within the NCAA point system. Huh. So I would love if it was integrated. That can be a bit controversial of able-bodied and disabled athletes uh, competing on the same teams. There's a lot of discussion on that, or would you just have disabled teams compete against each other? But we need to integrate that. We also need to have the same amount of coverage for the Paralympics as the Olympics. They need more scholarships. They need more sponsorships. Disabled athletes also need the same amount of care and attention when it comes to mental health too. So here's my fun COVID question. What are you doing to pass the time these days? Like, have you picked up a hobby? Are you binge watching anything? Oh gosh. Um, I've really gotten into painting my nails because uh, I would hmm. usually never do that because okay. I wouldn't have the time. Definitely. At, oh, this is what I've been doing. I have gone down rabbit holes on TikTok of skincare and free Britney movement. And I am definitely pro-Britney movement. That's great. That's great. I love her. Her Instagram is a thing of beauty. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, Kristen. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. 
You can follow Kristen on Instagram at Kristen two underscores Duquette, D-U-Q-U-E-T-T-E, and on Twitter at Kristen Duquette, all one word. And now let's turn to our second guest. My name is Lacey Henderson. I am a Paralympian. I do long jump professionally for U.S. Paralympics. Um, I, I dabble in the 100 meters as well, and I lost my leg above the knee to childhood cancer. I had a cancer called synovial sarcoma and then kind of was an athlete with a prosthetic leg growing up. I cheered competitively in high school and then I cheered in college and I kind of like in a weird roundabout way found track and field um, as I was finishing my undergrad. So it's been a great way to kind of use your disability to get a job and pay the bills. <laughs> well, you take me, I'd like to talk about your first race. Could you tell me about that? Um, <laughs> I'll tell the embarrassing. Like when I'm, okay. when I have Thank time, you. I tell like the glory story, but this, it was not, it was the opposite of that actually. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so well, Tell me the non-glory story. I had basically started pole vaulting. My dad went to Olympic trials for pole vault. He and I like are overly competitive and we'll just talk trash. Like that's my actual true talent is trash talking. And so one day we were just like talking about who was a better athlete. And somehow he was like, Lacey, you couldn't pole vault two feet. He's like, you're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. You just wouldn't be able to do it. At 21, like you can't tell me nothing. Okay. I know it all. And um, only my like family that comes from a pole vault background would be able to have a pole vault pit and poles just like ready, like just like on demand. <laughs> so the next day I sure. jumped, I jumped six feet, but like basically I really got into the feeling. Like I knew that my cheer career was going to end and I just wanted to still feel like I could do flips and like fly. And so I got a running leg. I started competing just like an indoor kind of all comer track meets and I got asked to do my first hundred meter race. And, um, so I'm from Denver and my dad is like a, like a well-known track name for at least a while, probably not now. Yeah. The time keeps going, but, uh, we're lined up at the line and I know the announcers from cheerleading. I used to judge cheer competitions as well. And so they were just like trolling the hell out of me and they were like, Lacey Henderson, like daughter of legend TJ Henderson, like all-star cheerleader, blah, blah. And of course, like, again, me, 21, I'm like, yes, like, that's me. Like, I'm the best. <laughs> so we line up. It's a unified race. So they have, like, all ages, um, different levels of disability. And the person I'm lined up to is this, like, younger boy. And he, I'm a right leg amputee. He's a left leg amputee. We get set. The gun goes off. And our prosthetic, our blades clip each other. And so I, like, I go... <laughs> down immediately to the ground and I just remember like laying face planted on the track for a second I was like man they really had to do that whole introduction and I hear like one of the coaches who's, who's coincidentally I'm a congenital amputee I just hear him be like Lacey get up get up Lacey get up you have to finish get up so I get up I finish the race but they actually let me come back the following day and um, I'm able to race again and then I qualify for London so the second part of the story is usually what I tell people when I want to be impressive, but that's that's actually what happened. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, so you have been to the Paralympics. You went to Rio in mm -hmm. 2016. You competed in the 100-meter dash and then the long jump where you placed eighth, which is yeah. fantastic. Uh, so tell me when you started thinking about the 2020 Tokyo Games. Um. Well, first of all, that was very nice of you to say if I finish eighth, which is fantastic. So it was, it's so funny. It is fantastic. Like, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I made finals, which is crazy because like, 
I think like when you get to a certain level and just athletes in general, you're always so hard on yourself. You're like, don't say that. I don't want to hear that. But it is, it's true. I made finals. <laughs> like it was not the best meet of my life, but I did make finals. People did not make finals. I have to remind myself. Thank you for that. Thank you for that reminder. You're so, welcome. um, I, I, so I wasn't satisfied clearly with my Rio performance and I was like, all right, we'll get him next time. So that was pretty much like a plan of the seed. I knew I was scratching the surface of like of my skill set. And so I was like, all right, if we do another four years, like it's going to be popping off. Okay, so then when did it start to enter your mind that they may postpone the 2020 games? I think like maybe January, February, my mom started being like, oh, this COVID's really bad. And I still was traveling for work. I was still traveling for training. And um I was living in Austin. I moved to Denver because I was having issues with facilities. In Denver, I have a little bit better resources. We were going to finish the year with the home team and um, maybe finish the career in Denver where it all started. It was going to be very, like, a beautiful metaphor. And I start going to my tracks, and they're locked up, but not, like, normal one padlock, like, triple padlocked up. And, um, you know, you're like, well, this is going to be a little bit more difficult to, to be able to find a sandpit if I can't get to a track. But I was used to just, like, getting kicked out of facility. Like, for being a track athlete at the professional level, honestly, we get no love except for Olympic years. And even then, they're like, get off the track. You're not supposed to be hmm. here. Because you're, like, of, using – is it, like, because you're using high school and college facilities? Yeah. So it, like in, why? Like, if you're an alumni of your school, it's usually a lot easier. But I went uh, – ah. like, conveniently, I went to a school where they don't have a track team. Okay. But, I, like, and I have facility, like, I have access to facilities here. So probably, like, late February, there starts being a little bit more, like, inconsistencies with tracks being available. And then I would say, like, mid-March, it starts, like, dawning on you that you're, like, there is no way that they can do this. There's no way they can do this. And USA, if I may be frank, I, like, okay, let me just preface this by, preface this by saying I have been lucky enough to be an athlete for my adult life. So I don't really know like a lot about business. I don't know a lot about budgets. But with that being said, USA was definitely like on team make this happen. So um, we had a couple of calls from with USOPC for a few kind of like emergency type situations because there was athletes on these calls at like like swimmers and water polo athletes were like, oh, I'm going into the ocean to try to train or like, oh, I'm going into lakes to try to train because I can't get to the pool. And like I have international competitors and I have like really strong competitors from Italy and Spain and they were locked in their houses. And it just seemed I remember at one point I said on a call, I was like, this seems like the opposite of integrity. And the idea of sports is so beautiful and wonderful and harmonic, but the business side of sport is like, oh, we spent a lot of money on this, so we need to find, do everything we can to make this work. So a lot of people were like kind of freaking out. Track meets for us were just like dropping left and right, and you have to qualify in order to go to trials, and then trials, you have to qualify for the team for Tokyo. Everything was postponed for a while, postponed, postponed, and then when Tokyo got postponed, it was like, all right, we're going to just redo this year next year. Can you tell me what that's like? I, I'm an anxious person. Maybe this is too basic a question, but like, how did you manage that? Like, how did you feel? Um, first of all, let me say I have a fantastic sports psychologist. He was good. I was texting him a lot <laughs> before that, good. and we had a couple of FaceTime calls. And honestly, when they announced it officially, I felt relief. It was becoming too, so stressful to just like try to fight to find a track that's open, try to fight to find gyms that were open, which they were all closed. It was like, this is real. They finally made the decision and 
you know, you can regroup and kind of reprogram for the upcoming year. So you felt relief. I'm wondering if there was anything you did that you normally wouldn't have done because you were training. Like, did you go like eat a bunch of ice cream or Um, I like wine? I'll say that. (laughs) I'm a gal that likes a nice glass of wine. Not really. I mean, I didn't like, you know, you see jokes about like people like, you know, day drinking at 11 a.m., which I do think is funny. But like I still I still tried to maintain some type of routine. Like that was one thing that I've learned a long time ago with track is that having something that resembles a routine kind of helps your brain like not just feel like it's in complete desperation, which like some days it worked and some days it didn't. And that's okay. I kind of like, I tried to do things that I didn't, that I don't normally do. So like I was doing like little video yoga classes and like trying to run distance around the blocks of my neighborhood. And like, I'm not cut out for that. I learned pretty quickly, but the yoga videos were were pretty fun. Like I just really tried to like kind of do things that were relaxing and not track specific. So what does training look like for you right now then? Is it running around your neighborhood? How are you getting ready? So the plan is basically now is I was doing some light training, still on the track. I'm, I'm really maximizing my equipment, which needed, God, it needed help. So my prosthetic is like nice now. Like I did not have it set up. So it's getting real nice for 2020, which is great. Um, Can you tell me what that means to maximize your prosthetic? So, yeah. So Paris is so funny. Um, there's like rules and regulations. I get asked this a lot. There's rules and regulations mostly for the bilateral amputees. But for the unilateral amputees, like you'll start seeing like trends basically of the alignment on a lot of the prosthetics. So like a lot of the time the foot looks really far behind. So your weight line from like your hip down to your toe is almost like at a triple extension angle. Like basically when Mm. your foot is hitting the ground, like you're almost like in a terminal stance type phase. So it was really just like getting the alignment down. Um, I was on like running blades that were way too stiff. So I wasn't getting good compression last year. We actually had issues with shipping because most of my feet come from Austria. Um, so I had some old ones that were just way too stiff. So thank goodness my prosthetist, that's the term for that clinical profession. But my prosthetist is very smart. He's really good at physics. So we just shaved off the sides and we were able to get the compression that we needed for now. We've, we've definitely learned to be resourceful in an unprecedented time. But uh, we'll start preseason training, which is like heavy volume stuff in October and, and go through. Before we talk like big picture stuff around disabled athletes, I wanted to ask, did the postponement affect any other parts of your life? Like I'm, I assume you had post Paralympic plans. Yeah, have, for sure. Have any of those <laughs> been put on hold or what are you doing about that part of your life? It's been on hold and it's changed, which I think is a good thing. Um, I had a lot of speaking events lined up this year. So like also my bank mm-hmm. account was like, sure. Yep. Yeah. A little bit more frowny faces, but you know, like I'll do a Zoom, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, my plan was retiring after Tokyo. Mm. And I was ready to like kind of pick up stuff for my own podcast and kind of pick up stuff like for my career outside of sport. And um, actually, I was really just burning out like 2018, 2019. I was training by myself. I was having all these leg problems. And I was just like, I just just need to get through to Tokyo, just need to get through to Tokyo. And like, that's like not a great motivator, but I guess it was good enough at the time. And this year, like being able to take the time to like, to see like, do I like track? Like, yes, I do like track. Oh, like here are all the things that my leg needed that I kept putting off, putting off. And now we're fixing them. And I feel like I'm like, maybe I could go to 2024. Like, I think it's just been kind of a really weird, but good reset 
USOPC offers um, schooling. You can do online school. So I'm getting my master's degree right now, which is kind of cool. And it's in what MBA. Awesome. It was wow. cool. It was, it was available. It was cool. I didn't really think about it, but you know, I panicked. I was like, what am I going to do with all my time? And then it just turned out like I was just not organizing my time very well. And, um, but a lot of that was just like constant, I think exhaustion fighting your prosthetic. And so I don't know if I'm still competitive and I can, I'm still able to make teams and it still is fun and like serving me, then, you know, why not? Okay. So not retiring. No, no, not, Interesting. not okay. this time, not this go around. <laughs> all right. So obviously the pandemic is affecting athletes of all stripes at this point, but in what ways do you think disabled athletes are being uniquely affected by the pandemic? Like what kind of conversations with other disabled athletes, like what have those conversations been like? What are you hearing from your friends that are Paralympians? Okay. Um, sorry. I just like heard a lawnmower go off and I'm like, I don't think you can hear it. Okay. That's a, my husband just mowed the lawn and I was like, you better finish at 1 p.m. I was on a, so. yeah, I was on a call yesterday and I was like, I swear to God, <laughs> my neighbor you. was trolling me. I'm like, come on. Okay. <laughs> you hear me on here. So at first I think I was like disabled athletes, like we are adaptable. We are the masters at adapting. And uh, I mean, I think, wow, that's true. There's also so many risks that I feel like is going to be interesting on how it's covered and taken care of. My personal belief is that like, you know, a world post-COVID is going to still be very much affected by it. So having 10,000 athletes in one dining hall at one time is going to be creative, to say the least, regardless of ability or not. And for me, I'm lucky enough that I'm an ambulatory athlete where I just kind of like, all I need is a leg, you know, that's it. And um, for athletes, I think a lot about like the seated athletes, like a lot of like higher spine injury athletes, like the bocce athletes, any type of quad athlete that's going to need assistance transferring from their chair to their throwing chair, like it's going to be interesting and it will definitely be more heavily affected than the non-disabled athletes for sure, which isn't to say the non-disabled athletes. I think that there's like this mindset where people think that the disabled athletes have like, we run more risks, which I guess we do, but there's plenty of non-disabled athletes with extenuating circumstances that could be affected by COVID just because you're an athlete doesn't mean that you have like steel immune system there's also like the fact that for track and field at least in the u.s a lot of our officials are just like the exact age demographic of the people most affected by this so hopefully and i have full faith that there is people much smarter than me <laughs> making plans for those circumstances because everybody has a right to play and you know these different categories of athletes should still be able to do their sport and i know that they're still training Hopefully the powers that be have plans put in place for that. One thing I've been thinking about COVID is we're hearing a lot about, obviously a lot of people have died, um, but a lot of people have gotten it, gotten better, but had disability on the other side of it. Yeah. These long haulers, like we're going to have a significant number of new disabled people specifically from this pandemic that we're living through right now. And I'm wondering what your message would be to those people that want to be athletic and how should people within sports be preparing for this? That's a great question, actually. Um, I would say, first of all, I guess to everybody, you learn quickly that no one disability is created equal. And um, I think we're learning now with COVID is that like no one person responds to a disease or a treatment equally as somebody else. And the cool thing about sports is that 
there are people, especially now with the Paralympic movement growing, there are people put in place that are equipped to present sport to you and make it accessible to you, no matter what your circumstances, your physical circumstance. I should be honest, because let me tell you, being disabled is one of the most expensive things I've done. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, of course. Um, I, you know, I didn't sign up for it, but it just, you know, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. So without the risk of getting too political, hopefully after this too, we find way better ways to serve the disabled community because even before COVID, we were the largest minority in the world. And um, it's just going to keep growing for people recovering from COVID that are going to acquire like prolonged or permanent issues. Um, you just learn to make your disability a part of your routine. And I think like the biggest misconception is that people with disabilities wake up like super duper inspired and jazz to just like take on the world and just prove everybody wrong. And you're like, nah, man, I'm just trying to go to the grocery store today. <laughs> like, you know, like the yeah. disabled were just like you. But the biggest thing, I guess, for disability, especially in the US, is you have to learn to advocate for yourself because no one else is doing it right now. Hmm. So I know that disabled athletes access to sport. That's a huge topic. But are there two or three basic things that need to change or could change in order to make sport more accessible? Like if Lacey was in charge of the world and you got to change two or three things that would suddenly make sport more accessible for disabled yeah. athletes, like what would that be for you? Honestly, I would do a lot more cohesive and unified sports. I was lucky enough to train in Phoenix with alongside Olympians. And it was like a utopia type experience for training. Like we had able-bodied, we had disabled athletes, we had everybody. And um, that proved to me that everybody can grow and everybody can get better regardless of the people you surround yourself with. And I think right now, like the U.S., we have gotten very comfortable with the NCAA system providing sport development for athletes becoming adults, which is great. Um, but not great for everybody because not everybody can be an NCAA athlete and, you know, score points for that team. And like, I think like our country could do a lot better job of just better sport development programs. We can do like more local sport development programs and make them unified, make them for everybody. Because like the crazy thing about disabled sport and non-disabled sport is that it's the same sport, like in track and field, like it's the <laughs> same event. It's the same distance. There's really... The equipment may look different, but at the end of the day, it is the same event. Badminton's the same way. I learned that last year. Don't know a lot about badminton, but like, holy smokes, what an incredible sport. But they train with <laughs> their able-bodied counterparts because it's the same sport. Mm -hmm. And I think people in the disability community, sometimes like we get wrapped up in it too, where things need to be separated or made specific for you, made specific for your disability, made specific for people with different disabilities, and sometimes you just need to jump in and play. And that was, I think, the biggest thing that I learned growing up, even though I call it like I was in disability denial. Like I just was like, I'm not disabled. Just I just have one leg. Um, <laughs> and then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, but that was the best thing that served me was that you are just able to make you just you have that camaraderie, you're able to make friends in the same sport you do. And I think that's important because in our communities and our like closest communities typically if you are a person with a disability you're the only person in your community with a disability so to hmm. try to do a sport consistently you need to have groups that are going to help you achieve your sport regardless of who else participates in it so can you tell us a little bit about obviously what's next for you as training for tokyo next year but what else are you doing yeah so right now i'm finishing my mba 
I just bought a house, which is exciting. We have a house. So like I'm doing a lot of raking and like, like yeah, there's always something with a house. There's always something to do. It's actually a little overwhelming. But other than that, I mean, yeah, Tokyo is the plan. We'd like to travel. My boyfriend's grandma lives in Italy. So we and my family Mm -hmm. in Italy. So we always like to go back and at least hang out, kind of feel like, you know, you can get away for a second. But that's where I want to go when this is over. I'm learning Italian. Right nice. <laughs> well, well, like it's real loose. It's like once a week. For hey, but minutes. you know, just the effort. They they appreciate the effort regardless. I just yeah. I speak Spanish, but I'll do it with like an Italian accent, and you know, it's amazing how far you can get. It's pretty and close. Yeah, yeah, up, yeah. You pick up some words, but um, yeah. I mean, I guess like besides training in school, we're still planning on doing season two of Pick Last and Gym Class for my podcast. I interview people. We basically talk about the stories of struggles before success. And it's about 50-50 disabled people, 50-50 non-disabled people. So I would love to just keep doing, working a little bit more on like the creative podcasting side. I've had a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think more than anything this year has taught me, it's been a reminder. And I was reminded the last Olympic year too, that you're never just an athlete. You're never just a person with a disability. You're never just a mom. You're never just whatever. Like we can be so many things and there's space for all of it. And it's been, it's been a weird, but good year to be reminded of that. Thank you, Lacey Henderson for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you. You can follow Lacey Henderson on Instagram. Uh, My name is Lacey is your friend there. Uh, I have a Twitter. It's Lace is your friend. I ran out of characters for that one. (laughs) Her website is LaceyJHenderson.com. Her podcast is called Picked Last in Gym Class. That's it for me, Jessica Luther.